In 2017, Nicole Verkhylen participated in a triathlon held by the Challenged Athletes Foundation. Minutes after she crossed the finish line, the organizers told her to come up on stage. Nicole thought they wanted her to talk about the 1,500-mile ultra triathlon she had just completed days earlier. So I'm super sweaty. You know, I'd just gotten done with the run. I'm exhausted. So I go up there, and all of a sudden, I realize that they're about to present me with my first ever running blade. And as you can imagine, it was such an emotional experience, and I just, like, broke into tears. A running blade is a lower leg prosthesis used by amputee runners. As an amputee who lost her leg when she was 10 years old, Nicole is dedicated to fighting an outdated healthcare system. Insurance only provides one walking prosthesis every few years. But Nicole is a runner and a biker, and her prosthesis wears out fast. The equipment is also expensive. We're talking at least $15,000 per prosthesis. It's not realistic for Nicole and her family to buy these out of pocket. In 2017, Nicole realized if this was affecting her own ability to be active, it must also be affecting a ton of other people. She decided to do something about it and took on a huge physical feat, a 1,500-mile ultra triathlon down the West Coast of the United States. The goal, to raise awareness about the lack of access to prostheses for so many people and to change the system. The journey, which she called Forest Stump, was her first foray into activism and advocacy. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living. At eight years old, Nicole Verkylen was on her way to a softball game when she tripped and fell. Her parents took her to the hospital for an x-ray, where doctors found an egg-sized tumor in her leg. Nicole was eventually diagnosed with osteosarcoma. It's a rare form of bone cancer that occurs mostly in kids. To save her life, doctors amputated Nicole's lower left leg. She's been wearing prostheses ever since. Nicole Verkylen, welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living. Thank you so much, Shelby, for having me. Some people might not understand but there's different prostheses for different activities. So there's running blades for running. I've seen people with different kinds of legs for surfing, different kinds of legs for skiing. How much do they cost? Also, can you just break this down for me? What's the difference between prosthetic and prostheses? Yes, great question, all of it. So yeah, first, difference between prosthetic and prostheses. Prostheses would be the plural term to refer to multiple prosthetic devices. Prosthetic is usually used as a more adjective to describe a prosthetic device. But um, prosthesis, prostheses are kind of the common terminology. And then a prosthetist is the individual who actually makes your prosthetic limb, which is an incredible process and probably the most significant medical professional in your life as an amputee is your prosthetist. But yeah, to kind of dig into the 
the various prostheses that are out there. There are prosthetic devices and prostheses that have been developed to specialize in certain activities. So like for running, for example, having a running blade is significantly different than having a walking prosthesis. The amount of energy return it provides, the type of suspension that you might use. And as an amputee, I'm a below knee amputee, so I still have my knee and can utilize that. But for someone who is missing their knee, they're going to need specialized equipment to be able to replace what has been lost. And that's really expensive. So for myself, a basic walking leg is around $15,000. A running blade is around $15,000 as well. So if insurance deems this not medically necessary, they don't cover it at all. And most insurance policies do not cover anything that is for physical activity or activity specific. So as you can imagine, $15,000 out of pocket, then that having to be replaced every three to five years you know, it's just not affordable. It's not accessible at all. And just like you said, there's been some amazing developments in technology for running, for skiing, for snowboarding, for swimming, you know, all of these things that make life really worth living and allow people to be social and to be with their family and friends. But none of that is covered. Anything beyond just basic walking is considered to be not medically necessary by insurance companies. I want to hear some details and stories on this, but I kind of want to go back for a second. So 10-year-old Nicole, um, you had cancer. That's that's really challenging. Tell me about that. What kind of cancer did you have and that you had to amputate your leg? So I had osteosarcoma, which is, you know, a rare but becoming more common now that we have better screening and ability to find it in individuals. Actually, we found it when I was eight years old. And then it wasn't until we moved down to Rochester, Minnesota, where the Mayo Clinic is, and I reestablished my care there, that they said, yeah, you know, this was about two years later. They said, we need to do another biopsy. And they're like, yeah, this is an aggressive and rare form, you know, of osteosarcoma. And immediately, like a month after that biopsy, I started chemotherapy treatment and then just two months after that, had my leg amputated. So it was really a wild ride um, and very traumatic, you know, as you can imagine for a 10-year-old going through that, just a huge emotional battle, you know, losing a leg and then trying to figure out, you know, how are you going to walk again? How are you going to run again? How are you going to get back to the activities that you love to do? How did you have such a strong sense of self at 10 to just be like, well, whatever, I'm going to keep doing these things that other kids can do. I mean, you must have always been this way. And then maybe the experience just, maybe maybe it just magnified, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know if I was born with it or not. But, you know, my mom has always been a huge emotional support system for me. And I would credit my ability to get through that to my mom and to my family of just instilling you know, this sense of confidence and trying to make me feel like I wasn't any different and that they still expected a lot out of me. But it definitely was challenging. You know, I didn't have any type of therapy. It hasn't been until the past few years that I've actually reached out and and have had the opportunity to talk to a therapist. Once I got into my teens, it was really difficult. Definitely had some sort of undiagnosed social anxiety because of it. But really, after doing our 1,500 miles, it was such an amazing confidence booster to me to find that identity again as an athlete and to kind of confirm that identity in myself. 
And I found that I opened up significantly in my confidence level. Yeah. So tell me about that 1500 mile trip. You called it Forest Stump, which is such a brilliant name. Tell me how you came up with the name and what it is. Oh my gosh. So, I mean, thinking back on the past five years, really this all culminated and, and started in 2017. So I was training for my first half marathon. At that point, I'd been an amputee for the majority of my life and had always tried to be as active as possible, but insurance only provides access to one prosthesis. So having access to like a running leg or anything else that you might need to be physically active just isn't covered. And so I was training for my first half marathon and my foot just kept breaking. It uh, it was supposed to last, you know, three to five years, but I was literally uh, breaking it every six months just because of it wasn't built to withstand that type of pressure and that type of activity. Um, and during that process, I was also training with one of my best friends, Kathleen. We were going to be doing this first half marathon together. And it really became evident during that process that as we were training, you know, she was getting stronger, she was getting better. And for me, I'd take one step forward and two steps back. I mean, really, it was a a hugely frustrating process not to have access to the appropriate prosthesis that I needed to do that. And so Kathleen and I just started talking about that and was really her first experience um, of really talking about what it's like to live with a disability, even though we've been friends for a long time. I hadn't really talked about my disability much with her, but it became really evident as we were training for this together. And so to me, I started to think about, you know, what is it really that makes me disabled? Is it the fact that I'm missing part of my leg or is it these policies that restrict access uh, to the appropriate prosthesis that I need to be as active as I want? And uh, Kathleen and I started talking about what we could do to raise awareness and, you know, joked about running across the country and what that would look like. And I was like, yeah, it would be like Forrest Gump. You know, I'm a huge fan of Tom Hanks, a huge fan of the movie Forrest Gump. And then I was like, Forrest Stump, you know, the name just kind of came from that and it stuck. And so then we just started thinking about, you know, instead of running across the country, what if we made it into a triathlon? Because that is something that I love. I love to swim and to bike and to run. And I wanted to be able to show that in any of these activities, individuals don't have access to the appropriate prosthetics or orthotics that they need to be able to do that. Um, And we decided to go down the West Coast. Uh, I was just about to move out to Seattle with my partner, and we wanted to kind of hit up some big, major uh, metropolitan areas during that journey to raise awareness. And then uh, ending in San Diego ended up being kind of the most magical part of that experience. So that 1,500-mile journey, we called it Forest Stump, and now we've founded it as a 501c3 nonprofit, really grassroots advocacy organization for this effort. It took Nicole two months to complete the 1,500-mile trip from Seattle to San Diego. On the road, she was accompanied by her friend Kathleen and her partner Natalie, who was the team mechanic and Nicole's prosthetist. Nicole's mom drove the support vehicle, which was also known as the sag wagon. She also prepared food, she did laundry, and she cheered the team on. Every day, the team biked or ran countless miles down the coast. There were also a couple of gnarly and pretty sharky swims in there, including a one and a half mile swim under the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco to Horseshoe Cove and Sausalito. Even though Nicole and her team had limited ultra triathlon experience, They crushed it. 
as part of Forrest Stump, you do this 1500 mile ultrathon, which is like an ultra triathlon, swimming, biking, running all the way down the coast. And you swim only like the scariest part of the coastline, which is San Francisco Bay, like known as like one of the sharkiest areas ever. Yeah. Looking back on 1500 miles, we had never done anything like that in our lives. And so it really was this, this huge thing for us. Um, Wait, back so up. My- you'd never done anything like that? Like what was the longest you'd run, biked or swam before? So I had done a half marathon. I did do a 300 mile kind of five day bike ride. And in terms of swimming, I had done some open water swimming in, in Michigan, but nothing to the extent of like a, a two month long 1500 mile journey. And not to the extent of like an everyday, I didn't, I didn't grow up really as like an everyday athlete and having that experience. So this was pretty amazing. And Kathleen, my best friend who I did my first half marathon with was along for the journey as well as my partner, Nat and Kathleen, before we left down the coast, she didn't even know how to bike. I'm not joking. (laughs) I taught her how to bike a month before we left down the coast. And she also did pedals. Definitely didn't know how to do that. Didn't know how to do clipping pedals. I mean, literally had never awesome. ridden a bike in her lifetime. So it was like, amazing. Like literally had it like, like not even as a little kid? No, no. Wow. She had never she had never had access to, to that growing up. I don't, I don't up, know so. people as an adult who've learned to ride a bike as an adult. That's so cool. There's hope. Yeah, she's an amazing athlete and just had a lot of courage and confidence in herself, which is amazing. Okay, so you go with your partner and a friend and your mom. Yeah. 1500 miles down the coast. Some of it's biking. There's a portion that's swimming. Do you have any stories from the trip that just totally stick out? Oh, so many amazing stories. The first, it started on day one, honestly. Somehow we decided the first two days we should do 100 mile bike rides back to back because that made sense. And it happened to be over 100 degrees in Seattle during that time. And so We were just like up against this massive heat, just total exhaustion. We're still trying to figure out our nutrition and hydration because, you know, we weren't really major athletes and hadn't had that experience. Um, And so then when we got down to the Columbia River Gorge and to Portland, we had a, a swim scheduled across the Columbia River. And it was at the same time as the Eagle Creek Fire had started. And so the swim actually got canceled because of the fire. But we were like, you know, we only have really a few swims scheduled, so we've got to do it. So we decided we got some friends and family together, got some kayaks and paddle boards. And so then I swam across the uh, Columbia River, even though the swim had been canceled. And, you know, there was ash coming down around us. And, you know, I realized after that it was probably not the best idea because I was breathing all of that in. But we were just so determined, you know, we had put this down on our schedule like we had to do it. And then we got out to the coast and it was on the fifth day. Um, it was just outside of Tillamook that we were uh, heading downhill. And somehow Natalie, my partner, grabbed her left hand brake and did an endo on her bike, landed on her shoulder, took her to the ER. And she had actually dislocated her shoulder and had major issues. Um, and so she wasn't able to get back on the bike until... 10 days later. And Kathleen was right behind her when she crashed her bike. And this was Kathleen's kind of first time on a bike. And then she sees Nat go down on this major crash, cracked her helmet open, you know, just not good. Um, And so Nat ended up kind of then moving to Sagwagon support with my mom. 
And Kathleen and I kept going. And then 10 days later, she joined us back on the bike, which was a little bit sooner than probably she should have, which just, you know, she's a badass. Um, And then, yeah, getting down to San Francisco and then doing the Shark Fest swim. That was one of the scheduled swims that we that we did. What was the swim called, though? It wasn't called the Shark Fest swim, was it? Yeah, it was called the Shark Fest swim. That's what it's called? Who enters that? (laughs) I know. Looking looking back, I'm like, I can't believe I did that. I had never actually swam in the ocean up until that point. So was super nervous about swimming in the ocean and also just like leaving my leg behind because I wasn't able to swim with my leg on. You don't even have um, like a triathlon wetsuit. I saw the video. I was like, this girl is just going out in like whatever wetsuit. Yeah, it was whatever wetsuit we had it. on hand. Yeah. Oh, That's and then the funniest awesome. the funniest story with that. So we get on get on the ferry. They take you from Sausalito to the south end of the Golden Gate Bridge and then you have to jump off. But when I jumped off, I was so like taken in the moment because we had our film crew on the boat. I totally forgot about my goggles and my goggles <sighs> fell off my swim cap and sank to the bottom uh, of the bay. So, yeah, I swam the entire entire thing without goggles, which was really interesting and had a lot of salt water in my eyes and in my contacts. I actually think swimming open ocean is kind of it kills your eyes without goggles, but I- I sometimes don't want to know what I'm looking at when I'm swimming a distance. It was a confidence booster. I was like, well, now I don't have to be worried about seeing a shark. (laughs) That's incredible. Okay. So there's the swim. You do it. And then you must just feel like a champion when you finish. Because how far is it? Uh, I believe it was just under two miles. Um, Oh, that's no joke. Yeah. So it was a good swim. And you know, I, there were people in the water that, you know, they had the different kayakers and uh, jet skis. And, you know, I had swam over to one of them when I lost my goggles just to see if they had an extra pair. And they, you know, they didn't have anything. But, you know, one of the individuals in the uh, kayak was like, you're a strong swimmer. You got this. And, you know, that gave me confidence. It was just really cool, like swimming alongside this whole group of people. And one of the places where I feel so normal and natural is in the water uh, and just feel like I don't have a disability in any capacity. So yeah, it was a huge confidence booster coming out of the water, having Nat and Kathleen greeting me and kind of supporting me as I hopped out uh, to get my prosthesis back on. Um, But that was, it was probably the part of the journey that I had the most anxiety about was doing the swim. And so after, you know, we checked that off, it was uh, relatively smooth sailing. I mean, we had quite a few additional adventures after that point, um, but that was the biggest part. So let me ask you something. When you're swimming, you're not swimming with your prosthesis on. Correct. So another part that I, I kind of didn't mention was that uh, most prosthetics are also not waterproof. And insurance also thinks that having a waterproof limb is a convenience item, so they won't cover anything that's waterproof. Um, so, and it's also just more natural to swim without a prosthesis, at least in the way that they've, uh, the prosthetics that are out there as options. So yeah, I swim without a prosthesis. So you do the swim, then you've got a couple hundred more miles to go from San Francisco to San Diego. You make it to San Diego. It seems like you, you, you end at someone's house. Yeah. So we ended at one of my mom's best friends from high school at her house. And so she welcomed us into her house. And it was such an amazing way to celebrate that kind of final mile was pulling into her house and having all of our friends and family there. But the celebrations weren't over. 
Turns out she had a little more running to do at an incredible triathlon event in San Diego with the Challenged Athletes Foundation. After 1,500 miles, I mean, what's a few more? When we come back, Nicole talks about getting her first running blade, making her 1,500-mile journey into a stunning short film, and climbing Cotopaxi in Ecuador. Before Nicole set out on her 1,500-mile journey, she was connected to the Challenged Athletes Foundation, known as CAF for short. The foundation supports and provides opportunities to people with physical challenges so they can lead an active lifestyle. Every year, CAF hosts a triathlon in San Diego. It's a huge event for adaptive athletes. I've been several times. I even saw the late and great Robin Williams, who spoke at some of the earlier CAF events. It's a must-attend event for anyone who is or knows an adaptive athlete. So you get there, you just did this ride. Do you have to do their triathlon too? (laughs) So yeah, we ended up doing their triathlon too. We broke it up. I did the run. Uh, the, the swim was actually canceled because of conditions. Um, but I Nat did the bike and then Kathleen and I did the run. And then they like call you up on stage at the end or what happens? Yeah. So I, you know, I went up, did this 10 mile run because I was like, I, I got to do it. I got to be part of all the events. I get back literally within, I think, a few minutes of when they said, hey, we're going to be having you guys on stage. So I'm super sweaty you know, I'd just gotten done with the run. I'm exhausted. I thought they were, you know, calling me up on stage to talk about Forrest Dump. So I go up there and all of a sudden I realized that they're about to present me with my first ever running blade. And as you can imagine, it was such an emotional experience and I just like broke into tears. And every time I see that part in the film, I cry because it was such a validation of that point, you know, like I'm an athlete, you work so hard for this, you deserve to have access to this and something that, you know, we had fought so much for, but also at that point confirmed in my mind how I wanted to make sure that other individuals could have that same experience. Nicole, I'm tearing up just hearing you tell this story, but at the same time, I'm like, kind of should be normal that you get this leg. Like, I shouldn't have to tear up. This shouldn't be like a gift. Like this should just be something that you get because you're a human. And yeah, you had an unfortunate thing happen to you, cancer, but you want to run. Like you should be able to run just like everything else. Can you tell me a little bit about the decision to make your 1500 mile wild idea journey, your ultra triathlon into a film? And then what that was like having a film crew? Yeah, so- Originally, we, you know, it was like one month, a month before we were about to head down the coast and we were posting to Facebook, letting our friends and family know that we're doing this and we'd quit our jobs, you know, what Forest Up was. And it was through that process that Kathleen got connected with a former dorm mate because we all had graduated from Michigan together. And he now had this film studio agency in New York by the name of Chris Duncan and their company is Snow Day Studio. And so he reached out to Kathleen and said, hey, like this would be really cool to to create a documentary. You know, is there an opportunity to do that? And so I got on the phone with Chris and started talking about it. Like, you know, can we make it happen? What do we got to do to do this? So we started fundraising and kind of bringing their team on board. 
And uh, yeah, they were able to join us and kind of take off for two months with us down the coast, which is just amazing. And had never even seen anything Chris had put together, but I just had this belief that everything was coming together in the right way for the right reasons. And what Chris and his team created and produced, I mean, it's a beautiful film. They did such an amazing job on it. And this was Chris's first uh, short form documentary too. So it was a learning experience for all of us, but it was kind of funny. It ended up, you know, we definitely ended up doing more than 1500 miles because the film crew, the way that the style that they wanted to get for this documentary wasn't just being flies on the wall. They wanted to get some really beautiful shots at like sunset and sunrise and like getting up early and staying late to be able to get those. And so I just remember going over the Bixby Bridge. I swear we biked over it at least 16 times to get the shot that's in the film. And then by, at the last last one, we blew a tire. Uh, and so we had to stop at that point. But it was just amazing to have them along the journey and to have that film as like a, a memory and of the journey itself, but also an incredible way of sharing the story and the message. to have been able to experience these 1,500 miles. This is a privilege, it really was. But it has become evident to me that if I wanna be a better athlete, it's not gonna happen with the leg that I have. What was it like when you first showed the film to other people and they saw it and you got feedback? Yeah, I remember our first showing was at South by Southwest, um, just not actually part of the uh, event itself, but kind of a separate event. And I remember the part in the film where it got to the point where my leg ended up not being functional to continue on, like it was breaking down. And I remember just someone in the audience just yelling out like, no. And that was so, that was awesome to me to hear that. Like it was the first time that I, I felt like, you know, someone else understands the pain and that emotion that I've been going through and what it's like to be an amputee and to have to face these battles uh, every single day. So it was just incredible, um, you know, having that moment. And then, you know, once the lights come back on and you see people, you know, uh, dabbing their eyes and that they've been crying and uh, and that it touched them emotionally. It's just amazing to see that and, and so personal to me. Making a film about the ultra triathlon allowed Nicole to share her story, but it was just the beginning of her work in activism. After completing the 1500 mile trip, Nicole founded Forrest Stump as a 501c3. Nonprofit status would make it easier to advocate for other adaptive athletes to get the equipment they need. Insurance is overwhelming. That is such a daunting thing to take on. It's dealing with private health care, Medicare, Medicaid right now. Like I'm only laughing because like that's a that's a giant wild idea. And it seems like sort of overwhelming to me. How do you even do that? Like, where do you start? Yeah, taking on insurance companies. Oof, I mean, not a lot of people want to get into that fight. That's for sure. But I mean, the the thing that fires me up and makes me want to do this is when I see things like insurance companies sponsoring marathons, half marathons, 5Ks, 10Ks. 
and telling people, you know, you need to be physically active, you need to run. And then in the same breath in their policies, denying access to people to be able to do those exact things. To me, that is a fight worth fighting. And so the work is really advocating for policies so that more people can have access to prostheses. Yeah, that's something that we realized early on. You know, there's a lot of nonprofits out there right now that are working to provide access uh, to a prosthesis or an orthosis or an adaptive uh, sports wheelchair. But there's nothing really being done from a systems level perspective. There has to be other ways that they're getting if they're not getting them through their insurance and like people don't have just a spare 30 grand on hand. Right. Yeah. People have to rely on charity. And that's such an important aspect of that is that people with disabilities aren't charity cases. And as you were mentioning about, you know, it was a beautiful moment at CAF being granted this blade. And I, you know, I'm so grateful for that. But no one should have to have their health care on display in that way. You know, if someone getting chemotherapy or having a heart transplant, like they shouldn't have to have that in a documentary film where they're so emotional and having it all on display for other people. It should just be part of what we do as a society to take care of each other. And so, yeah, right now people have to apply for grants, which can sometimes, the way that the process works, it's kind of like a a window that only opens up at a certain period of time. So if you miss it, you don't have that opportunity for that year. And the other part of that is it's really not just, it's not an equitable distribution of, of resources because oftentimes it's word of mouth. A lot of nonprofits don't have the budget to have marketing to be able to get their message out there, which is why I never even knew about CAF. If you're not part of those social spheres or those social circles, um, then you don't have access. And, you know, it's it's expanded upon not just people with disabilities, but people within that population, you know, people of color that don't have access to these communities or these resources, uh, those effects are just multiplied in terms of not having access. So it's really something right now that people either have to rely on charity or they might go to the point of utilizing something that they're not supposed to, or they just go without and they don't have access to physical activity, which is as we know, so important to a healthy and long life. And, you know, as we've seen more people with disabilities in the limelight, in the spotlight, we've got some major companies that are showcasing individuals with disabilities utilizing these prosthetics that aren't covered by insurance. So they're showcasing the 1% of people who have access. And they should really try to understand how can they further this cause so that the people that they're supporting aren't just the 1%, but that other people have access as well. In addition to Forrest Stump, Nicole manages public engagement at the American Orthotic and Prosthetic Association. Right after her ultrathon, she also completed a 10-week fellowship with the National Association for the Advancement of Orthotics and Prosthetics, during which she met with Congress people and their teams in Washington, D.C. Between her new position and running her own nonprofit, Nicole is deep in the world of advocacy. Nicole is also a do-good ambassador for the outdoor brand Cotopaxi, which was actually named after a mountain in Ecuador. Let's talk about Cotopaxi. You're, you're a do-good ambassador. What does that mean? 
Yeah, it's super exciting uh, new program that Cotopaxi has launched, and I'm honored to be one of eight individuals who, through their efforts, are trying to make the world a better place. Um, that's really our mission is to do good in the world, and it's amazing to have Cotopaxi behind us to help support us in that. So the Cotopaxi Foundation has uh, benefited the Range of Motion Project. Right after we had done our 1,500 miles down the coast, I got a call from uh, one of the individuals there named LP who said, hey, do you want to climb a volcano with us? It's a 19,347-foot volcano in Ecuador called Cotopaxi. And never in a million years thought I would ever do something like that. But after 1,500 miles, I was kind of on top of the world and was like, yeah, let's do it. So flew to Ecuador with the Range of Motion Project and climbed Cotopaxi with a number of other amputees. And as part of that mission, we were trying to raise awareness on better access globally to prosthetics and also raised a bunch of funds to help provide prosthetics to those in need. So the Range of Motion Project is doing incredible work, and I'm honored to be an ambassador for them. And they're a beneficiary of the Cotopaxi Foundation, which is how I got connected to Cotopaxi and uh, their Do Good Ambassador Program. Any advice to others on how to live more wildly, whether it's going after something you want to advocate for or doing a wild idea like a 1,500-mile ultrathon or a marathon or, you know, maybe just going on a hike out your front door? Yeah, I think the biggest piece of advice and what was our mantra when we were doing 1,500 miles was start before you're ready. Oftentimes we can be perfectionists in our own lives and not want to start something because we're afraid of failing or not doing it right or not being perfect. But having that mantra of just, hey, you know, start before you're ready. Like, no matter where you are, it's going to be okay. Just take one step forward and, you know, just take it one day at a time. So that's kind of my advice to, to people is to listen to that fire that's within you, that nagging feeling of something that you feel like you need to do uh, in your life. You know, really listen to that. Don't ignore it. Uh, because at the end of the day, it's, it's going to come out at some point. And the sooner that you embrace it, the more wildly you're going to live and you'll have uh, an even more fulfilling life because of it. If you want to help Nicole's cause, you can start by sharing her story. Amputees and people with disabilities often share their stories, but allies getting the word out there makes a big difference. You can share this episode as well as Nicole's film, 1500 Miles, which we've linked to in the show notes of this episode. And of course, you can go to foreststump.org. That's F-O-R-R-E-S-T-S-T-U-M-P.org. While you're there, you can sign Forest Stump's petition to help people with disabilities access the tools to exercise. You can also follow Nicole on Instagram at runforeststump. Wild Ideas Worth Living is part of the REI Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, Shelby Stanger, written and edited by Annie Fassler and Sylvia Thomas of Puddle Creative, and our senior producer is Chelsea Davis. Our executive producers are Paolo Motola and Joe Crosby. As always, we love it when you follow the show, rate it, and review it wherever you listen. And remember, some of the best adventures happen when you follow your wildest ideas. <laughs>